Hello, everyone. I'm Adam Bidwell, Head of Small and Mid-Cap Equity Sales at Investec. Thank you very much for joining us today for the next installment in our IPO podcast series. The 2021 IPO market could be crudely summarised as a year of two halves. We saw a large volume of listings taking place in the first half, but then a more discerning and challenging market in the second half as supply and inflationary headwinds came to the fore. Investec were delighted to have been involved in six IPOs during the year, but with 2021 now well behind us and increasingly encouraging data points around Omicron variant, I'm delighted to be joined here today by Matt Evans, Portfolio Manager at 91 and running the UK Sustainable Fund. So in this session, we're going to be exploring some of Matt's perspectives on the state of the market and the IPO market in London, as well as delving into some of the ESG thematics. Welcome, Matt. So before we talk more specifically about ESG, I just wanted to ask a kind of very broad introductory question and ask how you're looking at 2022. There's loads of macro headwinds. We've got interest rate rises, inflation. Um, hopefully we've got Omicron um, sort of dying away. But how do you feel about the market overall and, and the outlook for 2022? Yeah, I think, as you say, um, you've pointed out some of the challenges, um, but, you know, a new year does present new opportunities. So I think, look, we can't forget all those challenges that, that are those serious headwinds. And, and for us, we've taken a very clear focus on some of the supply chain challenges, uh, the levels of inflation and what that might mean for interest rates. And we think that's something we're going to have to keep a very, very close eye on through certainly the first part of 2022. And it was a much used phrase uh, of transitory inflation. And I think what we're seeing because of some of the challenges, certainly around supply chains, is that that looks a little bit more set in. And one of the areas we're looking at actually is labour inflation. We think that will be one of the key areas to look at. There hasn't been much inflation um, over the last sort of, you know, five years, really. And we have seen the labour market tighten as um, governments have sort of reduced support through furlough schemes, etc., unemployment levels are very low and that is seeing some labour inflation, some wage inflation coming through and that could stick around. But actually that supports, you know, maybe consumer confidence going forward because there's more money in their pockets. Although prices might be going up, they've got more money in their pockets. So we're keeping a very close eye on, on that and there are clearly going to be some challenges ahead. But also there should be opportunities. As I've said, you know, unemployment is very low. Interest rates are starting from a very low level and are likely to go up. But they could be manageable in in that world where post-pandemic companies can get back to investing and that should support growth going forward. So despite those challenges, we think in the medium term, there are definitely going to be some opportunities out there for companies to make the most of uh, investment opportunities and the consumer as well with hopefully good levels of employment, a little bit of wage inflation that could still support reasonable consumer confidence into next year. That's really interesting to hear. I mean, I guess when we think about the market overall and, and you know, we're in sort of turbulent times, um, how does that come into your thinking around IPOs? And if we are into a, a turbulent market, it, how difficult is it for companies to come to market? And I'm also interested to hear your view about when people talk about IPO windows, IPO fatigue, how does the wider market overall play into your thinking around companies coming to market? We'd had a pretty quiet period in terms of IPOs and, and last year marked a significant change, as you pointed out. And it was quite exciting. There were some really, really good companies that, that came to market. So 
we get quite excited about IPOs, but as in every company, what we want to have is good, I suppose, transparent disclosure and the time to get to know those businesses. I've got a portfolio that's been in place, you know, for many years. So we know those companies pretty well. I think one of the problems with an overcrowded IPO market is we just don't have the time to commit to every single company that's IPOing. So I suppose what we look for is, yes, IPO windows can open, but we have to be very discerning about where we can focus our time on and energy. So we want companies to have good disclosure and actually take the time to get to know some investors when they're thinking about IPOing. So we have longer to get to know those businesses, put them into context of what else is in our portfolio and ensure we can do the research that we require to do to make an informed decision in an IPO company against what's already in our portfolio. So there's a lot of talk about IPO windows and when things can be done. When they get too crowded, it can be a problem. We saw a bit of that in the second half of last year where there was a bit of this fatigue that dripped in. I don't think it's the company's fault in that in that time. It's just that real I suppose, element of we just can't cover the ground. So although you might want to look at those companies, you just can't cover all the, all those bases. And that becomes a bit of a challenge. So for me, I'm delighted to see companies come. If we can have companies that can do some pre-IPO rounds so we can get to know those companies slightly earlier and be more aware of those timeframes, fewer surprises, we can really give those companies the time that they need, but also we need to get to know them. And you can build a bit of that two-way relationship earlier on in the process and therefore you know IPO windows won't matter so much for those companies that are that are well positioned and sort of well known and understood in the market. And just around your um, sustainable your UK sustainable fund is your process um, is your screening process kind of around um, you know looking at whether companies are doing the right thing and disclosing the right information or are you looking for companies that actually are making a positive change for the environment or, or both? Yeah, it's actually a little bit of both. So, um, you know, the, the sustainable fund that I run is based on three pillars primarily. The first one, financial sustainability, it's what most fund managers would look for. It's companies that can deliver good financial returns and everyone will have their different um, process in, in how to assess uh, that for companies. We utilise a quality framework look for a business model, um, how companies make their profits, competitive advantage, etc., financial model, how they turn those profits into cash. We're very focused on the cash flow generation of, of those businesses. And then capital allocation, we think it's really important to understand how a company invests for their future growth going forward or pay down debt or return that money um, through dividends or share buybacks. So to understand that is really, really important for us. So that's the first pillar. The second pillar is internal sustainability. That's really how efficiently a company manages its own resources and deals with all stakeholders. So for us, that's more traditionally called a sort of good ESG criteria. And we're really focused on how a company considers those areas and how they manage those areas of material risk, but also opportunity. So, you know, if you take our industry financial services you know we will have a few offices in it and there'd be a bit of travel but the carbon footprint in a financial service firm isn't that material of course we want those businesses to be aware and look to improve but if you then take you know an industrial company that's got significant manufacturing footprint uses raw materials and a huge amount of energy you know then how efficiently they run is really really important in those areas so it's to show that self-awareness and and where 
the material risks and opportunities come in their own operations. And that for us is really what you might consider the more traditional ESG. Then you mentioned that final point about, you know, having a positive impact on society or the environment. For us, that's our third pillar, uh, and we term it positive impact. And it's understanding the products and services that a company deliver and how they can play a role in solving some of the global challenges. And, you know, we look very simply, we've got a framework that considers what we think are investable themes, and we look to align revenue to those themes to assess how much impact companies can have through those products and services. And again, it's being transparent there. It's not trying to dress yourself up as delivering solutions where they just aren't. It's just being very open and saying, this is where we do. These are where the benefits can come from. And we think that, that you know, we look at that because we think it could be good areas of growth. And therefore, we can underwrite some of those sort of structural drivers about doing you know, having a real positive impact through the potential growth outlook. So we do consider it across the board. The internal sustainability, as I said, is efficient operations and then positive impact is separate. And we look to combine all those three pillars as we create our portfolio. And so for a company thinking about coming to market, um, IPOing, listing, whatever you want to call it, what sort of disclosures do they need to be making and how do they, if you're a company and you're quite new to all this kind of stuff, how on earth do you do you think about getting this information published and available to, to the market? Where do you start on this? Yeah, well, I mean, I've got a lot of sympathy for the companies because a huge amount is expected of them when they're coming to IPO. And you've got, you know, lots of different stakeholders in your business, but also in that IPO process from you know, the legal side to the broker side and then to what fund fund managers think they want. But again, for me, this is, you know, it always seems quite simple. You guys are running your businesses. You understand what's most important, what's most material to you. And the, the best starting point is to ensure that you can demonstrate that through your presentations and the IPO pre-marketing roadshows and IPO roadshows that you really understand your business and what the key drivers are to that. And of course, then, you know, where some of the risks can be to that and then extract uh, extract that information and start and, and ensuring that there's good data that illustrates that you understand the material risks through you know your internal operation if you're a factory how do you manage your raw material supply your energy supplies and then your waste and your water discharge you know if you're a financial services firm clearly not much of that is so relevant but what is it you know maybe on your data security that's going to be really important if you're a financial service firm and you're managing you know huge amounts of data so it's showing that you understand you have that self-awareness of your own business and disclosing very clearly in those areas and then i think there is a broader requirement there are lots of uh, rating agencies now that are looking at a broad breadth of, of data and information it's to be aware of that but it's to be open and transparent you know early on that we have good data in the area of carbon, perhaps, but we know we need to do better disclosure, you know, in other areas, whether it's water or waste or whether it's diversity of those boards. So it's use your advisors, it's have the discussions within, you know, the investors you meet early on to get clarity around which areas people are really focused on and start building up that area of information. But again, for me, it's really focused on having a self-awareness of your own business and being very clear on the information you can disclose here and now, and then going that little bit further to understand the areas of core interest or importance that people uh, look for in that disclosure, and then be open. So we don't have that information yet, but we understand it and we'll start building up, up that database to start disclosing as we go forward. 
And just to be clear, the, the onus is on the company to disclose that information rather than you as the investor having to go out and, and kind of find it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think ideally, you know, absolutely. We're not, I'd like to say we're not work shy, but in reality, we're looking, when I look at a company, especially at the IPO stage, yes, we'll look to do our background research, but I think one of the messages I like to get across to those companies, we like to hear for the first time the company present what it is their businesses in those areas of key materiality. If that can then be backed up with the data, then that's great. If it isn't, we will go out and, and look for that to do our own research to ensure we need it. But actually, if it's relevant to the business, it would be great for the company to disclose that off, off the bat. But it doesn't have to be the full breadth of all data that you might be expected to do once you're listed three, four years down the line. But to show that awareness that you've got the material data under control for your business, then I think that puts you in a really strong starting point. And I guess this could this could apply to either a company recently IPO or, you know, a company that's been listed for a long time. But are there any companies that you would point out that do do their ESG disclosure particularly well? They make it very clear any sets of reported accounts that you would highlight and say, go and look at that. That is a kind of model template for any any other company. Yeah, again, it's um, it's different for all companies. But, you know, a couple of examples, you know, I think companies like Mondi, which is a paper and packaging business, have pretty broad ranging sustainability reports. And what I like about their disclosure is it's a, it's a manufacturing business. They are quite carbon intensive, but they're quite open about how they're managing those challenges. So you get a sensible report that shows the areas of risk and what they're doing about that and a clear pathway to how they're looking to deal with those major challenges that they face. So there's a lot of information, a huge amount of data, and they built this up over a long period of time. It's not like this year suddenly they've nailed it. It's been an evolution over quite a long period of time. So I think, you know, companies like that are, un- are very clear about where the risk, but also opportunities in their business. Clearly, paper and packaging can replace plastics. It's seen as you know, more recyclable, uh, greater in the circular economy. So they they understand their product as well, but they also understand the challenges that it's very carbon intensive to produce, you know, the virgin packaging uh, and paper and cardboard, et cetera. So there's a real self-awareness of their business and they they seem to get that across in, in their disclosure. It might be unfair to ask you if to name companies that do it poorly. So um, I won't do that, but are there any sort of red flags or any recurring things where companies sort of fall down um, and perhaps don't quite get it right. So there's been quite a lot made about, say, the SDGs over the last two years, um, which are the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. There's 17 of them, and they're supposed to be how we move to sort of a more sustainable future. We think they're, they're really valuable. And, you know, I have seen companies report on how they address every single one of their goals. That might be absolutely spot on, but equally, I would say, it's quite hard to address them all through what you do. And there might be some associations. And it's, again, it shows that, well, we know we've got to do something about sustainability. Let's just show something that we do in all those areas. I would much rather say these are the two or three key goals that we think we can have the greatest influence over. Let's start there and build out. And again, it's a generalization. Some companies can, you know, I'm sure show how they have an involvement in all of those, but it's having that integrity about where the materiality is. So if you're too broad, too generic, say we can have this overall influence, that to me can reflect 
bad. And and hopefully, you know, as investors, we we understand that now. So yes, we're all we're all looking for improved disclosure. But I think don't be so fearful that you've got to come out and have nailed 100% of your disclosure on day one. This is a process. The transition towards a more sustainable future is going to take time. And the reality is we just don't have all the answers yet. I mean, if you take scope three carbon, it's exceptionally complex. And some of the best reporters, you know, even the likes of Unilever, they can't put out net zero on scope three because they can't calculate it yet. But they're quite open about that. So you don't be fearful about saying we just don't have the data or we can't report on it yet. But it's that knowledge and awareness that, that is a positive. And those companies that think they can come out or should be coming out addressing every single element are probably the ones I would say make us most nervous about their real I suppose, sustainability uh, credentials. And then just to bring bring the conversation back to IPOs again, you know, how practically does a company disclose this stuff around IPO? You know, they, they won't have published reported accounts. So does is this disclosure come across in, you know, prospectus pathfinders? Does it come out in, you know, brokers research reports, uh, pre-IPO research reports? Um, how, how do they get this information across to people? I would say it's a bit of all those areas. And, you know, there is, and again, this goes back to, I think, disclosure, sustainability disclosure or disclosure around ESG is a key part of your reporting once you're listed. But on day one, it's showing that knowledge of the areas of material. I know I'm going on and on about materiality, for which apologies, but it can be as simple as that. These are the areas we think are most material for our business. And this is the information we currently have. And that can be put across in those initial meetings in one or two slides to show and then to show how you're planning to evolve that going forward. And to be clear that some areas you don't yet have the data and it's going to be a work in progress. And then, you know, in Pathfinders, there should be areas that address material risks. Um, That's a key part of that Pathfinder. You know, there should probably be some areas that would be considered ESG areas in there as well. So there is a bit of the Pathfinder, but I think as an investor on those early stages, to pick out the O's of materiality in one or two slides and then ensure that's addressed through the Pathfinder, you know, once that's published and then in your first set of sort of report and accounts would be, you know, an interesting way to proceed. But yeah, don't don't be too fearful. Don't think you have to address everything on day one. Really think about those areas of materiality. And just thinking back in, in 2021, any um, IPOs that you would highlight that were, were handled particularly well, I guess really with an ESG slant around disclosure, having all the information there, any you would highlight as that's a pretty good um, pretty good model that others should follow? A fairly tricky question that actually, but it's because each company is individual and I think it is hard to come out with really, really good ESG disclosure on day one. Maybe if I use an example of of Podpoint, um, which is the EV charging business, because clearly their product is going to play a role in the transition to EV vehicles. That's all of what they're doing. And they did, I think, a particularly good job on, you know, clarity around what it is their product is going to do. Clearly, clearly it's fairly straightforward in that it's an EV charging system, but it's some of the other elements about, you know, once you've got scale, how you can then play a role in kind of grid management that I think really captured my imagination there and was a very clear, because that's on the product and so this kind of positive impact side where 
it, it was clear, but they, they just took it to a level which really helped inform me about that area of the market that I think did a particularly good job. In terms of some of the sort of more traditional ESG reporting, you know, again, there was, I think, better reporting all round, but there wasn't one that stood out where I would go, they've absolutely nailed it on, on all areas of, of ESG at that point. But Podpoint in particular, just because the product and service really had this very obvious exposure, they did a, a particularly good job, I think, of not just sticking it to the obvious, but helping to show how, as they grew, their potential impact will have a deeper and deeper effect on helping that grid management and therefore overall potential carbon reduction, which which I found particularly interesting. So, Matt, just thinking back to um, to 2021, we talked about it being a year of two halves and you know, I think the year started off pretty strongly. Um, I think uh, it probably got more difficult as the year went on. Um, how did you think about the second half? There were clearly some some difficult market trends. Um, has the market got significantly more difficult as we move into 2022? And, and how positive should we be with our outlook? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it is a really interesting point because I think I touched on slightly earlier that we hadn't had many IPOs and there was a big rush in the first half, but the market environment then was generally pretty positive. The outlook looked, you know, a lot healthier for most areas. We'd seen really big improvement, but there were some particular sectors, particularly, say, around, you know, online retail and those transitions where there were a lot of uh, listings in that in that period. And actually, you know, the trading environment for those became a little bit tougher and because of that, but also the sheer number of IPOs, the second half, if you take our funds, we're not all blessed with inflows of new capital the whole time. So we have to think about selling something to buy something new. I think it was just sheer numbers that led to the second half becoming difficult and a reduced amount of cash out there to you know, to fund while also having enough time to keep churning through all these companies while having to deal with you know your existing portfolio so that doesn't mean that companies couldn't list but i think the ones that were still successful in the back end had done those pre-ipo rounds people were well prepared they had a gap in their fund but also their diaries to do the meeting because they knew they were coming um that's certainly how i look to operate so as we move into 2022 you know, I know of some that are still looking to come in the first half and the second half a little bit quieter. So I've got more capacity to think about those pre-IPO meetings to see what might be coming. So I think think about that time frame, plan well and give investors a chance to engage with you early. And, and that helps to support that opportunity going forward, because in reality, a good company that's prepared investors properly can list at any time. And that IPO window, you know, yes, of course, it's relevant and it will have an impact on, you know, pricing and valuation and overall interest in those stocks. But good companies, you know, can list at any time as long as they've done the right sort of initial preparation. So I'd just like to finish off by saying a big thank you to Matt Evans, uh, who runs the Sustainable Fund at, at 91. We do hope you found the session interesting. It's a daunting space and clearly a lot to think about, but I think Matt's been really helpful today in helping break down that process and hopefully give companies an understanding of what they need to do. If you'd like to discuss anything you've heard today in more detail, please do get in touch with either me or Matt. We then hope you'll join us for the next episode in the Investec IPO podcast series, where we'll be talking to Sarah West, a partner at Financial and Corporate Communications Advisor Brunswick about reputation considerations for pre-IPO businesses 
and communications through the IPO process. Thank you very much and see you next time.